This is an ABC podcast. I'm Jonathan Green. Uh, welcome to this summer season of Blueprint for Living. And, and the last of this season, we're back with brand spanking new fresh content for you next week. And every week on Blueprint, we, we look at the world through places, spaces, food, gardens and design. We've been taking those elements one at a time for a bit of a wander. And in this hour, we're looking at food. Yum. Uh, he's six foot seven. He's a lover of spoofs and goofs, food, wine and cats. His latest book comes with a glowing testimonial from Jack Black. Meet Eric Wareheim. Uh, and, and what makes a great food city? According to Besha Riddell, great food writing is part of the mix. She'll explain. And every couple of weeks on Blueprint, Chef Annie Smithers and I talk cooking. We even make stuff. Uh, this time, salad dressings. And design icon guy Colin Bissett gets all summary with a history of the ice cream scoop. Now, there are a few things we could say about the, the man you're about to meet. He's quite tall. I experienced that for myself just recently. I can attest that he is he's six foot seven-ish. He happens to be one of America's most cherished comedians. And he is also a New York Times bestselling author, uh, thanks to what he has described, modestly, I think, as a, as a culinary Bible. Uh, we're talking about Eric Wareheim, a, a comedian you might know from the duo Tim and Eric. He's the, the Eric portion of that combination. And his new offering is a cookbook called Foodheim, A Culinary Adventure. Eric, hello. Hello. Culinary adventure. Why, why is it an adventure? <laughs> well, because it is. It's, it's exciting to me. You know, it documents the last 15 years of my life traveling around, coming to Australia, going to Italy and going deep and taking what I got from all those experiences and putting that book. So it's been a, a food and wine adventure. That's just how I, I look at it. Have you been, been sort fun. of note-taking in that period? Have you yeah. had this in mind as a project? Yes. I mean, I'm a kind of a freak note guy. I take pictures of everything. My Instagram is just like literally a food blog now. It's There's no <laughs> more comedy in there. Um, and, you know, a lot of it, a lot of the traveling's for research. You know, when I shot our show, Master of None, Aziz and I were in Italy for two months traveling around trying to find a cool city to shoot in and eating along the way. So <laughs> it's just what? blending my hobby and work and everything into one thing. What a tremendous act of self-sacrifice. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was painful. We had to, <laughs> it was painful. There's a fair bit of you to fill up. I mean, you're, yeah. you're, you're a large, tall man. Yeah, 300 centimeters, I think. So food is an important part of your life. <laughs> I, yeah. If I don't get enough, um, you know, there will be no me. The book has, has been well-praised. I mean, I, see, apart from the adventure thing, I, yeah. I've been instinctively wary of, of a food book written by a comedian. Yes, me too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know. It's been, it was hard. And especially the the kind of comedy I've, I do outside of Master of None is pretty on the fringe. But you guys down here in Straya seem to bond with it, which I love. That's why I love coming here. It's our sort of laconic vibe. Yeah. You know, we... Yeah. I mean. Um, Kath and Kim is like one of my favorite things ever to watch. But um, yeah, I went from comedy and I, I started making natural wine in Sonoma, California. And at first people were like, why would I ever trust a comedian that makes fun of food and wine? Can you answer that question? I mean, I, it just took a while. You know, we, we showed it to a lot of people. The wine is amazing. That's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, just proof that I've 
kind of have done the work. I've done the research. I've visited every wine region. I also partnered with the most amazing winemaker in California, Joel Burt. So it's just a really good thing. And because that was a, a success, I think that gave me a little bit more credibility to kind of move into the food world, as well as things like Master of None was so food-centric. Like, we were eating in the best places in New York, and we were filming there because we wanted to have, like, a time capsule of New York City. We shot in Italy. We literally trained with grandmas how to make pasta because on during the, sh the the photography of it was you know Aziz making these tortellinis and we wanted to be perfect so I think people started to trust me people some people don't trust me but now the book came out and it was like oh this is legit recipes that are founded in, in good stuff so you, your cooking sort of adventure your cooking quest mm -hmm. yeah, I mean is that a thing which which grew after the the, the love of food is it is that a thing you've yes. always had both yeah I you know, growing up and college and being a wedding photographer, I did not understand food yet. I knew I liked it, but I had only $5 in my bank account, so never could really travel or experience it. But once, maybe 15 years ago, I started traveling the world and understanding how good food is in those regions and why it's so special to eat that local thing, you know, like pasta from this town and charcuterie from this town and wine from that town. And realizing wine is part of life mm. in so many countries, that really turned me on and changed everything. Then I started traveling everywhere and just had that bug for adventure. See, I, I would have <laughs> thought that working in weddings could have put you off food for life. <laughs> oh my God. Well, it was a constant, It was. I, I have a story about this in my book, but it was horrible because we would work these 12 hour days and they, and it would be very rich weddings, you know, really fancy weddings. They were eating lobster. So the food was good. Yeah. But our lunch, we were only allowed to have one little, it's in America, we call it a hoagie, like a sandwich, a sub, sub sandwich. Do you call it that here? I've not heard the hoagie, Grinder. Did, sub I could understand. Yeah, yeah. A sandwich, a crappy sandwich. But what my mentor taught me was you could do a trick. You could back up to the shrimp and oyster area. And if you <laughs> pop your flash enough, you distract the wedding audience. And with one hand, you reach around, you grab a shrimp, grab a piece of lobster, and then that's how you can get the good stuff. So part of my upbringing is this, part of growing up in Philly is like you got to hustle your way to get the good stuff. You know what I mean? And, and your wedding photographs are... are, are <laughs> Discernible because of the, the sort of the yes the direction of they're all from they're, one they're angle. Looking, they're yeah. looking at the prawn table. I don't know yeah. why. Yeah, they had a lot of complaints. Every like, one why of would them. you shoot us in front of the ice sculpture? I was like, well, it's not near the prawn table. And grandmothers too. They feature here. Yeah. And in your own life, tell us about your yeah. mother. I mean, my grandma. I have uh, my mom. Um, grew up in Germany in a small town outside of Munich. So visiting my Oma and Opa was huge because they mm. had their own garden. They could not never afford like a ribeye. It was always off cuts of meat that were stewed all day or braised all day. And just the idea of like making these amazing, like I call them village foods because they lived in this village and it was like just a hundred year old recipe. Uh, and I put a couple of them in my book, this one called um, Rouladen. Bavarian rouladen, which is like a meat roll-up where you like slowly braise this beef and you put an egg and bacon in it. <laughs> and uh, it's really good. And But I love grandma foods from all parts of the world, you know, like Japanese curries or, or Thai curries. And especially in Italy, Nona's are like, I love them because they've taught, literally taught me how to make pasta, red sauces, all that stuff. And, and also in Philly, Philadelphia, where I grew up. 
very Italian-American neighborhoods, you would walk on Sundays and just smell these like red gravies going from every grandma in, in the neighborhood. So I was going to wonder, though, whether an American leave, needs to, to leave America to discover food, in a sense. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to, you, but there's a you know, huge difference between your Italian-American food and Italian food. And it wasn't until I went to Italy that I understood, that I made that distinction, that there's no spaghetti meatballs in Italy, you know, that they don't oversauce their stuff. You know, it's it's just so different. And then, so... Pizza I'm, would be in that category as well, of course. Yeah. That, I mean, that... How, how much time do you have? I, I could talk two hours about Please. pizza. But, you know, I'm I'm very... The pizza that's in my book is based off of New York, New Jersey, Philly style deck oven pizzas, kind of crispy crust, um, low moisture mozzarella. And then when I went to, of course, Naples, it just blew my mind. You here's, know? This, here's this other thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's just, it's so beautiful. You know, it's I was kind of like, you know, just because my roots are in Philadelphia, I'm like, I don't need this. And everyone's doing Neapolitan pizza around the world. You know that, like everyone's doing that big poofy dough and no one really does it anywhere close to what it's like in Naples it's just one of those things except for Japan there's a couple of places in Japan that do it that are like mine this place called Savoy it's the eye for detail yeah it is it's <laughs> obsession it's obsession over the perfect tomato the right combination of flowers you well, know, the perfect tomato has to, has to be grown on the, on the flanks of Vesuvius where it <laughs> Yeah, if you don't have that volcanic ash well, drizzled on you're there, nowhere. you know. <laughs> Pizza is, of course, and this is the first chapter of your book, is circle foods. Yeah. I like this categorization. <laughs> yeah. It's bold. It tells us where we are. I mean, what's another example of a circle food other you know, than pizza? Well, I'd have a smash burger recipe okay. in there. Circular. I, have, I mean, I'm a director. I'm a visual person. So anything circular, I kind of, I'm drawn to even like a taco, you know, shrimp taco or... Um, all of those things. I have a I have a pork katsu sandwich that's straight from my travels in Tokyo. But it's all like really. I wouldn't say they're all easy, but they're all approachable recipes to make like very authentic versions of all those things. And in my opinion, sometimes the best version, like the smash burger, I have like a meat blend that's very important and the technique of getting it really crispy. Is smash burger a huge thing down under right now? Um. I'm looking fairly blank about it. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So Smash Burger is just super thin patty. Okay. You know, it's not like your pub burger, which is thick. It's like it's everywhere in L.A. and, and America especially. But um, I like it because it, the proportions are correct. You're not stuffed from it. You can kind of do two of them if you want. So normally, you, you would have that sense of sort of medium rare meatiness yes. in the burger patty. But with the Smash Burger, it's all of a, a, yes. a crispy well-doneness. It's a different thing. It's all right. – yeah, exactly. It's all about the texture. It's like you okay. literally – I teach you how to make this lace, which is – it's all about pressure on the meat. You still want to get good meat, and you can still have a little ribbon of – Why do you need good rare. meat if you're going to smash it down into something crisp well, and, and skinny? It, it, it you can tell the difference not o- not only taste bud wise but your body can tell you know like hormones and antibiotics are not good for you that. yeah yeah always but there's such a vast amount of 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 cheap uh, good options of meat now that like I try to push that in the book every time like get a happy ch- happy chicken you're gonna you're gonna taste it or or a small horse in your yeah book. <laughs> <laughs> or a small horse but those are just for petting. I just put small horses in there because I'm obsessed with them and they're cute. Perfect steak? What's the secret to that? Perfect steak is where do you get that steak? To me, it's finding that butcher in your town, making friends with them. Where do they get it? 
And most likely it's going to be from a sustainable source, a grass-fed source, whenever the animal is allowed to roam freely. And then you can start talking about like what cut you want. Like mm. to me, I'm a ribeye guy. I like a big fatty piece of meat. I like to really char it and keep the kind of medium rare rareness of it. And with good meat, that fat just kind of renders in a different way and it becomes this whole different sensation which, you know, I barely can go to steakhouses anymore because I'm such a freak about <laughs> where does that meat come from and how it's cooked. Well, that's that's the thing. I mean, and a lot of people are asking those questions that you're asking. And yeah. Yeah. Is, is, the, is the food culture sort of slow to meet our expectations there, do you think? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people, especially me during this you know time off where we had to be at home all the time, I just did the research. I looked up like well, a lot for this book. I did my, my co-author and I, Emily Timberlake. We tried a hundred different kinds of steaks and how to cook them right. And I'm a big fan of like, do you know America's Test Kitchen? You guys probably have a version of this. It's like a website and a magazine that tests everything and they mm. find the best way to do it in the simplest way. And that's kind of that fundamentals I put in this book. And for steak, it's the same thing. You make short tempers, you bring it out of your fridge, make it temper for an hour, salt it for that hour. And that's not gonna make it salty. That's just actually gonna permeate the meat, make it tender, and flavorful, all those things, you know. I'm starting yeah. to there's a reaction in my mouth here. Yeah, and it's all, and then <laughs> and then you hit it hard. Like you, one of the big things as a home cook, I learned is you turn that flame up on high. You, it's you, it's very hard as a as a yeah. home cook to get things hot enough. Our, exactly. our equipment is not. I know, and the the BTUs of your gas or electric are not there. But if you have the right pan, you have patience. I let my cast iron get ripping hot till it's almost smoking before you put any fat in it or before you put the steak on. So it takes a little practice. Like temp meat thermometers are a good thing to invest in. They're like ten dollars. Like that really helped me understand how to. It's, it's hard to cook a steak when you're out, you know, on a fire and be like, well, I don't know if it's done. But a little meat thermometer is, yeah. you know, high end chefs will be like, no, but. Where I'm at and where a lot of home cooks, just pop that in. It'll tell you exactly when to pull it off. And then rest it. It's another huge thing. 15 minutes of just resting, letting the juices integrate, and then you'll have that perfect bite. At what point do you sing to it? <sighs> the whole time. Okay. But as soon as I pull it out, I start singing to it. And then when I'm this this is the thing you do with food oh, yeah. is you sing, you sing you to your food. It's a musical theater? Or yeah. What, what sort of stuff do you well, sing? Well, if I'm doing red sauce on a Sunday, you okay. know, I always, my wife and I always we'd make some kind of like – Meatballs or chicken parm. It always starts with Nona sauce. That's in my book. It's a grandma. I call it a grandma sauce. It's a really good red sauce. It's low and slow. It takes a while, maybe an hour or two. And you put on a little Frank Sinatra. You put on a little Italian disco. You know, like keep it. I keep it Italian. I'm drinking a beautiful Nebbiolo during the process, and I just, I you know, I just sing along, sing to it lovingly, like a grandma would. Everything is like, how do you, how do you feel? When your grandma gives you a hug, that's kind of how I want my food to feel. You there's, know? A, there's a lot in the way you talk about food that reminds me of Anthony Bourdain. I mean, he's he's my absolute hero. I, I got lucky enough to meet him a couple of times in New York and London. You have drunk together. Yeah, yeah. We had some martinis in London, and we were just such mega fans. He didn't know who we were, and he was like, who are you guys? And we're like, um, I don't know. We're comedians. We're on tour. Like, you want to hang? And then in five minutes, we were like... Just, you know, talking shit with him was great. We kept up our friendship for a little bit. And then I would see him in New York at events and stuff and always just following, read all his books, watch all of his shows. Just like, he's got it right. First cookbook is maybe a bit like the sort of first album. Maybe the second one's the hard one. Yeah. What do you put in that? I have an idea right now. It's not, and 
my co-author and I, we just were workshopping it. And it's a little bit different than a cookbook. It's like it's kind of documenting certain kinds of restaurants. I don't know if I want to leak it right here no, no, it's okay. exclusive you, you need to keep this close yeah but it's it's it is a different thing you know like another idea i had was called meat and potatoes foodheim's meat and potatoes which is i just love it which is after also about very, page 20 does that kind of start to pale yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and that but this new one is i'm document i'm very obsessed with steakhouses old historic steakhouses and the history of the people that run them. I, I, I travel around either on, on tour as a comedy or I shooting different places. And I try to find, for example, I went to Charlotte, North Carolina, and there's a place called Beef and Bottle. It's been around since 1950. And it was absolutely the most perfect place. You know, just the hit, everyone was, that started it was, was still there. They know what they do. Yeah, they know <laughs> what they do. And our server, Jerome, came up to us like, hey, I'm your server and your bartender. And I was like, that's cool. And, you know, he and we're like, we'll all take martinis, blue cheese olives. He's like, one second. And he goes over to the bar and he's making the drinks and he comes back and then he and on all the servers there do that. It's just like a special thing. Okay. So that like blew my mind. They have a lot of particular steakhouse items from North Carolina. And my idea is like kind of investigate those places. And then what would my dream steakhouse be? Because that's my favorite thing in the world right now is like a steakhouse, a wedge salad or martini. And there's there's hundreds of variations of all that you stuff. You tempted by this? I mean, you, you, the wine business, the comedy, the, yeah. the, the food books. I mean, you need a place. I know. It's very hard to open a restaurant, as you know. It's is that what you mean? Is that yeah, well, it's not only hard; it's, it's potentially damaging. Yeah. Jaime's would be you've got yeah. to do this. We well, I got <laughs> very close to something in L.A. Very dangerously close. And every one of my chef friends and restaurant tours was like, what are you doing? It's going to suck every ounce of your energy and your soul, and it's going to be miserable. And I was like, maybe you're right. I'm going to stick to some of my other passions that I feel a little bit more focused on. So in Melbourne for, for Food and Wine Festival uh, and, and doing comedy likewise. Yes. What's your routine when you get to a new town in terms of food? How do you, how do you case the joint? This is what I – last time I was here – we played the Hammer, and it was an amazing show two years ago, and for Tim and Eric. And I would just put out a social media message on Twitter or feed me, yeah. And it just has a picture of Melbourne, like what are my musts? And my kind of audience knows how serious I am right now, so people give me the what I want is what are the spots that no tourists are going to be except for me, <laughs> you know? Like, what's the legit food of the city? You know, this city is so wildly diverse it's amazing so and then i cross-reference that i watched the bourdain episode the the melbourne episode which still kind of reigns true a lot of those places are still relevant now and then friends that are here and we kind of put them together and then with my little algorithm going back to the note thing i have a mm -hmm. massive notes on melbourne and i just kind of go through them eric wehome will be eating his way around <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> As we speak, check his Instagram feed for details. Uh, he's a comedian. He's the author of the cookbook Foodheim, A Culinary Adventure. That's in shops and libraries. And Eric will be appearing at the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival. Uh, there'll be a link for your delectation on the Blueprint page, the RN website. This is Blueprint on ABC RN. If you think of the world's great cities, they have much in common, perhaps. Vibrant arts, cultural scene, terrific architecture, and, of course, superb food. And, and this is something that, well, Australian cities can boast as well, a vibrant food scene. 
Food writers uh, play a substantial role in, in that culture, the to and fro of ideas, of, of critique. Uh, what happens if a city sort of drops off the, the map a little bit uh, in, in terms of restaurant criticism? Does that matter? Does that impact that culture? Uh, Besha Riddell is, is perhaps going to find out. She's uh, recently appointed as Chief Restaurant Critic for The Age and Good Weekend. Besha, um, you may have read her work, LA Weekly, New York Times, but you won't have seen her. And she remains a physical mystery. Besha, welcome. Thank you. Tell us about that mystery, your, your, your anonymity. Yeah, well, I was lucky to start in uh, food criticism right at the kind of beginning of social media. So my first job as a food critic was in Atlanta, Georgia, and was around 2005. So, you know, two years after Facebook launched. So I never had my photo online. Um, and I think I'm probably the last, uh, <laughs> you know, of, of a generation <laughs> that was able to kind of live in the world without having your photo a bazillion times all over the internet. And at that point in time, food criticism was very different than it is now. There wasn't as many blogs, there wasn't influences. It wasn't like that. It was mainly kind of stuffy old white guys at the paper who had been another kind of person and then got a the sweet job of the restaurant critic, you know, um, and <laughs> well upholstered city of the time. Yes. And, <laughs> and anonymity was, you know, especially the people who did it very seriously, places like the New York times, it was a bit of, you know, it was kind of the job. You, you tried to go to the restaurant without people knowing that you were there. And I really aspired to that form of criticism at the time. And so I didn't have my photo anywhere and I just have made, that since part of that is for the obvious reasons. I think people kind of can understand why you wouldn't want to get special treatment. You want to see how you're treated, what kind of service you get. If you're just a normal person, there are so many other reasons though. For me, it's just way more mm. comfortable, mm. honestly. Um, I, I hate making people nervous and it, and I don't want to have a meal out where everybody's freaking out and that can happen. So <laughs> there's so many reasons, but you know, I don't think it'll last forever. You know, I might want to write a book one day or do something that will mean I need to be in public a little more. But mm. as long as that isn't the case, as long as there isn't a compelling reason, then I'm going to stick with it. But it's such a wonderful counterpoint in this world to, to carry out a, a career of cultural craft without making yourself the focus of attention. <laughs> well, I do think that that's a real thing in restaurant criticism. There are folks, especially in the kind of British model that really revel in the notoriety of it and love that thing where they walk in the door and everybody kind of <laughs> drops Lord their foot. <laughs> and that's certainly the kind a of critic that... single dropped it, knife. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's, that's the critic that is usually portrayed in movies. And, and um, but to me, that sounds horrible, actually. <laughs> so, so in preserving that anonymity, what, what's your booking strategy? Um, I book under a variety of fake names. Um, I, before the kind of touch, uh, very easy credit card thing, I had all kinds of credit cards in fake names. Um, <laughs> yeah, wow. it, it, it's really, I mean, when it comes down to it, it's really silly. Like it, it is like playing spy games as an adult. I was going to say it's a bit MI5, isn't it? Yeah, which, and it's just food. So it, there's parts of me that cringe at it, but 
the benefit is such that I, I maintain that. So I mean, it's interesting because you followed in the footsteps of, of the late great Jonathan Gold at LA Weekly, Ed, uh, mm-hmm. someone whose whose reputation and presence preceded him. It's it, you're, you're yes. quite a contrast to his style. Yes. Well, he kind of feigned anonymity for a while. And then when he won the Pulitzer, that's when he kind of officially gave it up. But he was such a visually striking person that everybody knew what he looked like. And I do think that that's a point at which to the silliness becomes extra silly if you're just pretending that people don't know you're there when they obviously do. But Jonathan, he also was not really a critic in the old fashioned sense. Mm. He, you know, he never gave ratings. Much of his writing was almost literary. <laughs> you know, you often couldn't tell whether he liked a restaurant or not, but it was such a joy to read him that it didn't matter. And he did a lot of the kind of stuff where he was going out and finding, you know, the most amazing taco on some street corner. It wasn't mostly wasn't him giving a rating to a fancy new restaurant. So I think that it mattered a little less in that sense. How does one sort of school oneself as a, as a restaurant critic? What, what's the path to that? <laughs> Again, I think the usual path is like... Eating. <laughs> eating and having a fair amount of money to do so and spending a fair amount of time kind of, you know, having three martini lunches for other reasons. And that has been the tradition. My path was incredibly different. I was a waitress and a cook for a time. I went to college in New York City and my now husband worked in a really fancy restaurant in New York and I was waiting tables there. And while I was in school for writing, I kind of realized that the thing that I knew the most about was food and wine, having worked in restaurants for so long and really loving that culture and the culture of hospitality Mm. and kept being sucked back into it. Even when I was kind of trying to work for publishing houses and stuff, I kept going back to waiting tables because I just loved that conversation around dining and realized that I really should kind of marry the two things that I was passionate about. I also think that young writers often make the mistake of saying, well, I'm a really good writer, so I should be a journalist when I think that an area of specialty Hmm. is really important. I mean, now it kind of goes the other way where people who aren't writers at all become food journalists because they're obsessed with food. And that's another difficulty, especially as an editor. Um, (laughs) But I think that, you know, people who do really well in journalism are often people who didn't go to school for journalism. They went to school for politics or, or, you know, my mother's a journalist. She went to school for Southeast Asian studies. So Mm. yes, for me, I decided while I was in college that I really wanted to be a restaurant critic. And then I pursued that, but I didn't come from a bunch of money and I had to really tutor myself and living in New York city for a few years was a huge part of that. Does that inform your work? Does that inform the purpose of your project as as a critic? Is that absence of privilege? And this is a world in which privilege is abundant and in which privilege creates access. Is part of your your project studying that, making um, an examination of that effect? Absolutely. I mean, I think that... It would be almost impossible to be a journalist in any sense of the word over the last 10 years and and not be thinking somewhat about privilege. But I do think that it helps to come from a place where 
it has not always just been something that you could take for granted. A very well-known journalist in the US a couple of years ago tweeted something about how he wanted to um, see food criticism from somebody who had lived on food stamps. And I replied that there was a period of my life, I got pregnant quite young, um, was living in North Carolina, and my husband was working at a restaurant making no money. And um, we actually were on food stamps for a little while in there when I was first starting out as a freelancer, was trying to make a go of it. This was right after college. And you know, part of what I said, I responded back to him was, you know, this was my experience, but part of what I loved about restaurants too was what they represented. Like, I think poor people are allowed to like want luxury too, or or, or want pleasure. And, hmm. and so it's a balance for me of, of seeing it from a point of view where you have to take value into consideration. You have to take workers into consideration. I don't think that, you know, the value of a restaurant is just whether the food is good. Are they, are they treating people well? And, you know, you can't always tell that, but when they're obviously not, that's a consideration for me, but also the understanding that people from all walks of life want to have joy and pleasure, and it can be found now almost at every price point. And, I do think that a big thing for me, something that I'm grappling with, honestly, with my new position at the age is how do we rank restaurants? What do we value and how much of it is about fanciness? And there has been a historical real, you know, people get hats based on fanciness and ambition. And I don't know how I feel about that. I, I can't change it overnight. Certainly that would be hard and it wouldn't be fair to readers, I don't think, but I am definitely thinking about those things. So there's a sense I, I, I'm getting from what you say in which a, a, a robust food culture is, is a, a complete ecosystem. It, it, it has the fine dining as much as it has the taco stand. And those, those things are, that's an essential curve between those things. I've always thought about restaurant criticism in terms of what do we want our cities to look like and what do we want to champion and I mean, that's good criticism of any sort, right? Architecture, art, music. What are we wanting to celebrate in the culture that we have? Mm. And that's a little bit trickier in Australia than it is somewhere like New York or L.A. Um, I just think that Australia is only just now coming into the idea of, of what its real value is in the world and isn't kind of trying to imitate other places in it, in its culture, you know, yeah, um, yeah. in terms of food, but other places too. But I think that that's a real question for Melbourne that is vital right now is, do we want our cities to be dominated by these very expensive restaurants that are often owned by big, huge groups that are very much like very expensive restaurants everywhere else in the world? They might be great and they might be lovely, but they don't necessarily, to me, reflect what I love about Melbourne and what nice. I would like to see Melbourne become. So I'm really looking at ways to try to shine a light on the things that I feel like we as a city in an international sense should be kind of shouting from the rooftops about ourselves, you know? Where does your eye fall when you walk in the door of a restaurant? Oh, <laughs> Because I worked in restaurants for so long and was a manager of restaurants for a really long time and I'm kind of pretty empathetic person, I often kind of absorb the energy of the staff more than anything else, which does a lot to tell me about, you know, how busy they are. 
whether they're being treated well, whether this is a fun place to work and therefore a fun place to eat. I mean, the best experience is when you walk in and you hear all that, you know, the chatter and the tinkle of glasses and the swoosh <laughs> yes. stuff. I love that sound. I've never gotten sick of that sound. So I'm looking for that energy and really looking at, you know, how are you greeted? Um, how does it feel to just, it, it should feel magical every time. It still does for me, even though it's my job. So that's kind of what I look at initially. You're Melbourne based, but of course, this is a country of many food cultures in different, and a variation in those city food cultures. Have you, have you mm -hmm. noticed that in your, your travels around this place on return? Is there a... Definitely. Yeah. I was really, really fortunate when I first got back in 2017 to be working for the New York Times and writing a food column for them about Australia, which was a very strange gig, but a really fun one. And that was national in scope. So I spent the first two years I was here really traveling and rediscovering my own country because I left when I was a teenager. So mm. I got to see pretty much every, you know, important city and a lot of the regional stuff going on too. And again, I kept kind of coming back to the idea of like, what is uniquely Australian, mm. which of these places is really um, kind of creating something that you couldn't find elsewhere. And that to me was the real thrill of that job. And, and the thing that was surprising to me was where I was finding that, you know. Do you um, have an answer to that yet? I mean, what are the elements of that? I do think there's a couple of places that are doing pretty well with that. Um, the Northern Rivers of New South Wales has this really lovely little restaurant culture that has been growing in the last 10 years. And it's interesting, my father had a house um, there. So I've been visiting there since I was, you know, 20 or something and seen that change from a sleepy little place to, you know, <laughs> now is just like, you know, it's all Byron basically. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but they, but the really high end restaurants there are really leaning into the, you know, the foods that are right around there and, and the best of them you couldn't find anywhere except at that exact place in the world. I think the same is true for Tasmania. They're so proud of what they're producing here food-wise mm. that they're really, really highlighting, you know, their fantastic wines, but also, you know, all of the incredible seafood that you can get here. And then apart from that, I'm interested in, you know, I I came back and was fascinated at how people sometimes seem kind of ashamed of like, you know, Ligon Street or <laughs> the things that our immigrant cultures have created as much as 100 years ago, mm. but <laughs> that are uniquely Australian. I mean, there is such a thing as Italian Australian food as there is Italian American food, but we cringe about it a bit, you know, Which and it's not the case. In, in Brooklyn, say. No, it isn't. And, and if I could do anything to change the food culture of Australia, it would be that. It would be to say, this is unique and it's ours and it's fantastic and it has its own inherent value and we don't need to try to be Italy. I mean, it's great when you get that very authentic Italian experience here and you can get that a couple of places in Melbourne, but I still love the Waiters Club. I love places like that that are so Melbourne, again, that couldn't exist anywhere else, that are a product completely of the place and the story of the immigrants that came here. And every city has has those equivalents. I mean, it's a, Absolutely. it's the function yeah. of, a, of a settler culture, I guess, that yeah, those things absolutely. occur. 
Yeah, I was fascinated when I went to Perth to find the Conti roll, which is a deli sandwich, and you can't really get an Italian deli sandwich anywhere else in Australia, not a decent one and not widely available. But in Perth, they have these deli sandwiches that are very much like what you would get at a deli in New York. But it grew up completely separately from... (laughs) (laughs) That New York deli sandwich or the Northeastern one, it was invented by the Italian immigrants to Perth who would, you know, stuff meat in the roll and go back to work when they were laborers. And that to me is just, I mean, that's what gives me goosebumps, those kinds of things when you discover things about culture through the food that you just would never have known otherwise. Besha, what a what a treat to have the work you do and What a wonderful approach you obviously take to it. Thank you so much and and all the best in your venture. Thank you. Basha Riddell, uh, just appointed as Chief Restaurant Critic for The Age and Good Weekend. You will see her words in those places. And this is Blueprint on ABC RN. Kitchen Rudimental, a series in which chef and author Annie Smithers investigates the very basics of kitchen craft. Annie Smithers, hello. Hello. Now, last time we talked salads and your wonderful Leonese, the Annie Leonese recipe is resting on the blueprint page at the Radio National website. This time we're going to talk dressings. Yes. Can you have a salad without a dressing? Of course. Okay. Just a naked salad. You can just have a naked salad. Again, that that gardening cooking thing, it's, it's very delicious to actually just break off some lettuce leaves and munch on them. But yes, I think that salads are improved by dressings or they add a, another element to the flavour profile. Let's start from the start then, uh, which I guess is a vinaigrette. Well, our friend Mrs Alexander dresses her salad in olive oil, no acid. Interesting. Yeah, and a lot of people do like to just dress with oil. I like to use vinegar. I like the sharpness of vinegar. Even on the most basic level, it immediately comes down to personal preferences and personal taste. Well, when you say vinegar, <laughs> that, that's a pretty wide open field. And then, yeah. Well, I make a very standard vinaigrette in my life, and that is one part sherry vinegar, one part extra virgin olive oil, and two parts grapeseed oil. So I use a fairly neutral oil as the carrier the vinegar and the element of olive oil for depth but not overwhelming flavor hmm, nice yeah that's interesting the grapeseed oil mm. so i i cook a lot with grapeseed oil because it's a lightish oil and it doesn't interfere with the other flavors but it dilutes the intensity of yeah, particularly extra virgin olive oils can come across as being quite rich and they can actually hide some of the other flavours. And because I love my lettuces to shine through, if I'm just dressing a salad with a, a lettuce salad with a vinaigrette, I like to sort of have the presence of the olive oil but dilute it a little bit. So yeah, so dressing is a, is a, is a complementary flavour profile to the lettuce and so forth that you're using. So what are we talking about with the vinaigrette, that sharpness, that set against what? 
Well, it's set against the oiliness of the oil, but it's also against the crispness and giving, picking up the flavours of the, of the lettuces. But also, I like to put a lot of snipped herbs in my salads. So a bit of chive, a bit of parsley, a bit of tarragon, lovely summer herbs to sort of give those little little flavour bursts of um, the oniony of chives and the, and the anise from the tarragon and parsley, just because parsley fixes everything. If I was making a, you know, a classic salad that has you know, leaves and little croots with a beautiful goat's cheese on them warm through roasted walnuts, is I would take that, that, that one part of extra virgin olive oil out of that dressing and I would replace it with walnut oil. So that walnut oil then complements the flavour of the roasted walnuts and sort of carries that flavour through the salad in a different way. In the same way that if I had a beautiful little roasted uh, root vegetable salad that had some chopped roasted hazelnuts, uh, I might put a bit of honey in the vegetables while they're cooking, but I would replace the extra virgin olive oil with hazelnut oil in that dressing so that you then start to have that sense of the different dressings to bring out the flavors of things we were discussing a salad at work recently that was raw beetroot and walnuts and raspberries and again when i've got raspberries that are sort of a bit past it is I will just put them in white vinegar and let them steep in that and create my own raspberry vinegar, which then I would possibly use in a salad that features those sort of flavours. So the dressings just go on and on because then we, yeah, that's a vinaigrette-style dressing. Mayonnaise has gone out of fashion a little bit. I think it has something to do with some fairly high-profile food poisoning problems. Oh, but also things come in fits and starts in trends and mayonnaise is not in vogue really at the moment. So if you want that sort of you know, more emulsified type of dressing is you can take a, a straight vinaigrette and you can whip it through yogurt or cream or sour cream and you get a lovely creamy textured dressing that has a different sort of fat feel to it because it has the, the addition of dairy in it and then you know plus the acid from the vinegar you know season it with salt to make sure that you keep those flavors coming out beautifully and that's another beautiful thing you can make a vinaigrette that's emulsified with dijon mustard i've been doing for many years and i think the recipe originated with ian hewitson way back in 1989 at elfington house wine bar gosh Remember the Lemon Tree Hotel? I do. Oh, now a, now, a, now, a, now a childcare centre. Yes, yes. <laughs> and we did a beautiful warm salad, and it was lettuce, fresh tomato, and it had a little fry-up of potatoes, bacon, and pork and thyme sausages. And the sausages were a little... We made them without skins and just roast them off, slice them up, toss them with the potatoes and the, the bacon. And then it had the mustard vinaigrette on it. It's been an enduring thing that I've made for years and years and years because those flavours really work together mm. and those textures, and it all, all comes together. So the, the notion of dressings is it sometimes also creates the salad... If you had some, say, de pie lentils, you cooked them up and you boiled them up and you started off with some, I don't know, some, yeah, little brunoise of 
uh, onion, carrot, celery, sweated all of that off, put your lentils in, put a couple of cloves Can you stop me there on, on Brunoise? Brunoise is the little um, millimetre by, well, it's a bit bigger than that. Yeah, the tiny little cubes. It's part of the, the cuttings that you learn as an apprentice. Goes with Julienne and Chiffonard. So the tiny little cubes. Um, so you sweat those off. You put in your lentils, a couple of cloves of garlic, a bit of herbs, veggie stock or stock or water or whatever. Um, you have your lentils. You might make them specifically for a little pulse salad or you might have had them as a hot thing and you have some left over. And bringing them back to room temperature or just warming them slightly and then adding a vinaigrette to them and you know, perhaps some fresh cut herbs or something that immediately sort of turns them into salad lentils so it's the dressing has this huge part in making it a salad to go back to the question that you asked me last time is what is a salad so it's really hard for me to define what is the dressing and what is what what is a salad and does the salad have to have a dressing but i think in 2022 those rules are they're very flexible. We're not in a Scoffier's time here where everything has a name and everything mm. has a purpose. Balsamic vinegar, you've not mentioned. Balsamic vinegar, vincotto, all the Italian, the Italian range are delicious and beautiful, beautiful dressings. And I think that, but the thing about a good vinaigrette is that it also relies on the fact that your oil is in pristine condition mm. because there is nothing more vile than a vinaigrette made with rancid oil. So don't use the one that you've done the chips in. No, don't do that. <laughs> but even oil that's been hanging around in the cupboard for too long can go rancid. So, yeah, for all my specialty oils, I leave them in the fridge so that they don't go off, they don't go rancid. Yeah, I was going to say there's no sort of generalised rule that you know dressings as a family of things have these characteristics because that's just not true it's not true and if you look at how home cooking has changed in our lifetimes you would not have grown up with balsamic vinegar you would have grown up with probably cornwall's white vinegar precisely well or even apple cider vinegar was more you know and now that's yeah, that's a very popular vinegar because it's got a lot of health properties to it. So it is. So what we learnt as children and what we carry through in our sort of Australian cultural bone of salad dressings has changed so dramatically with this explosion of embracing multicultural pantry items that allows us to cook from any region of the world and step away from that narrow world that we grew up in and embrace probably the pantries of neighbours and other people in our in our suburb that we didn't know existed that were having things sent from other parts of the world and dressing i mean it's such a, a wonderful area of experimentation really i mean it's there's, there's no great harm done have a have a go at things no because let's face it once it's dressed particularly if it's a soft green like a lettuce grain is well you can't keep it so if you didn't like it you just try harder tomorrow <laughs> hey thank you I, I i feel well dressed well, I'm glad you feel well dressed. It's sort of it's a it's a very big subject to just gloss over, 
But um, I think that uh, it is, as you say, a, an area of experimentation and personal taste and that um, just make sure that your ingredients are nice and fresh and uh, robust and just, you know, splish, splosh, splash in a different sort of way. Any thank you. Pleasure, Jonathan. I'm Jonathan Green and I have questions. I have questions about the world, like how many people in Paris live within five minutes of a bakery? Hmm, I'll ask a taxi driver. Well, that cleared that up. Uh, Here's another one. If you were getting Elvis to marry you in Las Vegas, what would he sing? I'm on that highway down to Vegas. I'm rolling through the early morning light. I've heard it said, Chad, that, that, that wise men say that don't only fools rush in. That's what I've heard. But I can't help falling in love with you. Very nicely done. And where does rubber come from? You know something? I've always wanted to go to a rubber plantation and tap a rubber tree for its sap. Just down. Oh, Oh, oh no! Return Ticket Season 2, coming soon and then forever on the ABC Listen app. Every week on Blueprint for Living, design critic and author Colin Bissett introduces us to something iconic. Colin? Just as there's always a debate about whether gelato is superior to ice cream, the means of serving either is open to argument. While there's nothing wrong with using a simple spoon, at least two people thought they had a better way of doing it. Unsurprisingly, both had their flashes of inspiration in America, a country that adopted ice cream as its unofficial national dish back in the early 1800s. The first design was created by an African-American called Alfred L. Kral. Called an ice cream mould and disher in its patent of 1897, it was based on two intersecting metal scoops, one moving over the other when the handles were squeezed together, so that the ice cream would fall cleanly onto the plate. It was a simple idea, which became quickly popular, not only for ice cream, but for anything that was sticky, like mashed potatoes. And while you might imagine it made Kral's fortune, it was copied so much by so many that he saw very little financial reward, which was sad given that Kral was the son of slaves in Virginia. His invention, though, meant ice cream would be served in neat little mounds all over the country, perfect for the quintessential apple pie. Just over 30 years later, his invention was challenged by a much simpler design, usually known as the Zerol ice cream scoop. It was the brainchild of Sherman Kelly, who saw how ice cream often stuck to serving implements. 
He designed a chunky metal scoop that had a liquid, like alcohol or water, contained within its handle. Warmth from the hand would quickly heat the liquid and then the metal, and the cold ice cream would slide easily into the dish. Called, rather unappetizingly, a tool for handling congealed materials, its patent was granted in 1939, but thanks to metal shortages in the Second World War, it wasn't properly available until the war had finished. There have been refinements and evolutions of both designs, showing that ice cream is obviously too precious to waste. Ice cream and gelato evolved over many centuries, from the iced milk of 7th century China to the still popular kulfi of India that first appeared in the 16th century. By the 17th century, water ices, known as sorbetti in Italy, had become fashionable, and thereafter, the careful balance or addition of key ingredients from egg yolks and fruit to cream or milk gave the world the distinctive flavours of soft ice cream and dense, rich gelato. The invention of freezing machines in America and Britain made the dessert even more popular. It was often served by street vendors in tiny glass dishes that would be quickly rinsed before being used again – the perfect vector for passing contagion. Thankfully, in precisely the same year that Kral released his ice cream scoop, an Italian in New York called Italo Marchioni created a thin cone made from a curled waffle, meaning both ice cream and its container could be devoured at leisure and with less fear of disease. So if you say gelato and I say ice cream... We can at least agree that there are two extremely good ways to dish it straight from the freezer. Unless, of course, you're happy to cut out the middleman and lick it straight from the tub. Colin, thank you. Uh, yes, two scoops, just vanilla, please. Uh, all Colin's icons gathered for you along with all the Blueprint stuff at the ABC Listen app. Check that out and check out our, our travel podcast, Return Ticket. You'll find that there as well. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Green. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.